0: Before we look at the text today, it would be helpful for us to remember something of the flow of the argument that's been going on so far in the book of Philippians to this point. Paul has been exhorting the Philippian Christians that it's essential in chapter 1, in verse 27, that they stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He tells them that it's going to be essential that they are united in the same mind, in order to be united, they're going to have to be humble and they're going to have to see others as more significant than themselves. They're not only going to be looking at their own interests, but they to have to look to the interests of others. And all of this, Paul has been exhorting them towards something. And that something is unity in the gospel. Remember, I've told you a few times that the main idea of the book of Philippians is unity. For the progress, unity, for the advancing of the gospel. And here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul gives an example in order to exhort the Philippians toward unity, toward gospel unity, toward unity in order for the gospel to go forward, in order for the gospel to advance. The example that Paul is displaying is designed to do something, to encourage Christians to live in humility to live in unity, and to live in helpfulness toward one another. And what I want to do today is to show you the basic framework for Christian living. We're going to see the pinnacle, the essential example of what Christian living is today. Paul says over and over in all the letters he writes in the New Testament that those who have been redeemed, those who are saved, those who have repented and put their faith in Christ, that they are what? In Christ, And because of that fact, because we are in Christ, we're to become more and more like Christ. The main idea of this passage today, I think, is pretty simple. It's follow the example of Jesus. Be like Jesus. How many of you remember the commercials? Be like Mike. Don't be like Mike, unless, of course, you want to play in the NBA. But if you're a believer, you want to be like Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. And listen to me carefully. Be like Jesus is not the gospel. Be like Jesus does not save you from your sin. Be like Jesus Jesus is the gospel. You and I are in trouble. As a matter of fact, you and I are lost in our sin and we have no hope of ever... Receiving forgiveness. Because nobody can be enough like Jesus to be accepted by God. That is not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying be like Jesus so you'll be made right with God. He's saying those who have been redeemed, those who are saved, those who have repented and put their faith in Christ, follow this example of Jesus. Be like Jesus. Paul is talking to believers here who realize, who understand it, that the reason they need Jesus is because they are not like Jesus. That's what he's pointing out to them. He's talking to those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ. Paul is exhorting these Philippian Christians, and not just them, but those of us sitting here today that are followers of Christ, those who profess to be believers, he's exhorting them in order that they might live in unity. Unity that God intends believers to experience in this world together. In order to do what? to advance the gospel into the world. Look with me at verse 5. In verse 5, there's going to be two points to the message today. And i try to outline so it'll be easier to follow. In verse 5, we see the Christians call to imitate the thinking of Jesus. Verse 5, imitate the thinking of Jesus. In verse 5, Paul exhorts you and I. He exhorts Christians. He tells us that as a congregation, as a church body... Our attitude should be that of who? Jesus. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, Have the mindset, have the attitude of who? Jesus. The goal of this attitude, the goal of this mindset, is for spiritual unity in the church, for the advancing of the gospel. Look back to verses 2 and 4. A couple of weeks ago, we Preach through that text. Notice what it says there. Paul makes a statement, complete my joy. And notice how he continues that uh, statement there. He says, By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul is saying unity in the church can only come when there's an attitude of genuine humility and truly regarding others as more important than ourselves. Notice where this mindset is to be. This is very interesting. I'm guilty of this, and I'm sure you are as well, of reading the Scriptures and just reading over words and never paying attention to what we're reading. But notice where this mindset is to be. Have this mind where? Among your... In other words, Paul is saying there's no way that you can obey this exhortation by yourself. You have to do it with one another and you have to do it toward one another. This is a command that the individual Christian cannot respond to by himself. It requires the whole congregation together to embrace this. Now you might be thinking, "Well, as an individual I can do that, but as the command for the whole congregation to do it together... It takes who? It takes all of us together to do that. The whole church must have this attitude. The whole church must have the mindset of who? Jesus. What is this attitude? If you're like me, you're going, okay, what is this attitude? What is this mindset of Jesus? We saw it in verses 2 through 4 that I just read. That the church should be what? One mind. They should be what? United by love. There should be humility. And they should be looking out for what? The interests of others. But notice what else Paul says about this attitude, this mindset in verse 5. Notice what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is what? Yours, where? In Christ Jesus. You see that in Jesus' wording again? The mindset, this attitude, this way of thinking is yours as a believer by virtue of being what? In Christ, by being united to Christ. By being in Christ, the Christian has the ability to live out those things in verses 2 through 4. You can't do those things apart from being in Christ, being redeemed from your sin, being forgiven, and being in a right relationship with God. Those here today who have repented of your sin and placed your trust in Christ and for salvation, you are what? You are in Christ. If you're one of those who are in Christ, you have the ability. Before you became a believer, you didn't have the ability to be united by love, to have the ability to live in humility, to have the ability to see others as more significant than yourself, to have the ability to look out for the interest of others. Now, I know you might be thinking, now, wait a minute, before I became a believer, I I think I could do those things, right? I could do them to a certain degree. Even as believers, let well, I me mean back up. Even as unbelievers, we can do those things to a certain degree, but we do them for the wrong motives. If we don't do those things for the sake of the glory of God, then God sees them as simple. And we can do that as Christians as well. We can see others more significant and, and count others more important than ourselves, but if we're not doing it in the right mindset, for the right focus, then we're not doing them. As being in Christ. In verse 5, Paul exhorts the Christian imitate the thinking of Jesus. Have this mind. But again, we ask ourselves what is this thinking? What is this mindset? What is this attitude of Jesus that we are to have? What is it that allows us to live out the things in verses 2 through 4? It's one thing, it's humility. The mindset of Christ, the outlook of Christ, the attitude of Christ is this. And we're getting ready to look at it. It's humility. In verse 5, Paul says, imitate. Have the mind of Christ. Now in verses 6-8, through eight, he tells the Christian what that looks like. So if you're making an outline, verse 5, imitate the thinking of Jesus. Now in verses 6-8, through eight, Paul says, look at the humility of Jesus, look at the humility of Jesus. Look at what He says in verse six. Who, speaking of Jesus, though He was in the form of God, form of God there simply means being in very nature God. What is Paul saying there? Paul says this is sort of. I was studying this this week, and it was one of those things you've read it and you know it's there. And then one day God is really gracious to you to allow you to see what you've been missing. Paul says, You see the humility of Christ in realizing who He is. He is divine, He is God. So you understand the reality of Christ's humility only when you understand that Jesus is who? God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. How do we know that? The Bible tells us in numerous places. I can't read them all, but here are a couple. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, says He is the image of the invisible God. Now we all know that God's what? He's a Spirit, right? He's invisible, but the Holy Spirit, through the writer here to the church at Colossae, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the person we see and we say, that's God. Colossians 1.19 For in Him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How much of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus? All of God. And notice it said it was He was pleased to allow it to dwell. It pleased God to let Himself dwell in in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is pointing here to the deity of Christ. He's pointing to the divinity of Christ. He's saying you will not understand the humility of Jesus until you understand who He was as He humbled Himself. God humbles Himself. Who do we looking to? Jesus. Imitating christ you see we can have this view we, you, you i'm sure you've had this conversation with folks and it goes something like this well i think jesus was a good teacher i think he was i think he was a good man i think he was better than most men paul is saying if that's all you think of jesus you'll never understand how humble he was Because you have to understand that He is God in the flesh before you can understand how humble He is. Look again in verse 6. Paul points out the second way we see the humility of Jesus. It's in his self-denial. Listen to what he says. He did not count equality with God a thing to be what? Grass. Notice once again how Paul makes sure that we understand that Jesus is God. You look at that verse going... How do we see that? He's telling us that Jesus, in fact, what he possessed equality with God, but he didn't what? He didn't count. He didn't consider his equality with God something to be what grasped and held on to. He didn't grasp, and the word there has the idea of being jealous. He didn't jealously guard his rights as the Son of God. The idea is that Jesus did not think of his equality with God as something to use for his own advantage. Are you starting to get the picture of the degree of humility that is taking place here? Since Jesus already possessed equality with God, He didn't need to do what? He didn't need to grasp it and hold on to it because He already had it. He didn't need to grasp that. Jesus refused to come into this world and demand that the world treat Him as He properly deserves. He didn't demand that. Instead, He was willing to come into a fallen, helpless world on behalf of Who? Sinners. Not only do we see His divine status, not only do we see His self-denial, but in verse 7, we see His self-emptying. It says, "...but made Himself nothing." Some of you may have translations that read, emptied Himself. I looked at the King James this week, and it reads this, "...He made Himself of no reputation." "...Made Himself nothing." emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. What does that mean? Now, there's a lot of debate, and we're not going to take this time to go through the debate about all the theological implications of what this means. We do not have the time, but I can tell you, it does not mean that he emptied himself of something. In particular, it, it does mean that Jesus it d- does mean it does mean that he did not empty himself of what of his deity. If He emptied Himself of His deity, He would cease to be what? He would cease to be God. Then what does it mean? It means that He gave up all His rights. He abandoned His rights. He became a... Listen, He became a nobody. Paul explains that Jesus making Himself nothing was what? He became a servant. He became a man. And His obedience did what? Led Him to death. Notice Paul says Jesus emptied Himself. And how did He do that? Notice what it says. By taking what? The form of a what? Servant. Jesus did not come into this world to be served, but He came to serve and give His life a ransom for others. Paul says Jesus became a servant. And that word servant there is the word Slave. Slaves have no rights. They are nobodies. Jesus, who has always existed, has always had the rights of deity. He was one with God, and yet, precisely because of that, he did not recognize his equality with God as something to be taken advantage of. Are you getting the picture? God comes in this world, but he doesn't grasp onto who he is. Jesus made Himself nothing, not by removing His deity, but by assuming the role of a what? A servant. He also made Himself nothing, now listen carefully, by taking on human nature. Jesus was God with us, fully God, yet He was fully man. Notice, Jesus emptied Himself by what? Verse 7, being born in the likeness of what? Men, now, listen carefully. Don't misunderstand me. There's nothing humiliating about you and me being born as human beings. There's nothing humiliating about that. But for the living God to be born a man, to take upon Himself the fullness of humanity, that is an act of humility. And Paul is reminding you and me that Jesus did that for who? Us. I was sitting in a class at Southeastern Seminary, and the president of the seminary, Dr. Danny Akin, made this comment. It was years ago, and it stuck in my mind ever since. Jesus becoming a man will be the same as a man becoming a flea. Now, if you're thinking a lot of yourself, at this point, you begin to rethink. There's nothing wrong with us humiliating being born as a person, but God... Coming down and becoming a man? So what does that all this mean? Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, did not think of His status as God as something that gave Him the opportunity to get and to get and to get more for Himself. Instead, His very status as God meant He had nothing to prove. And because He is God, He made Himself nothing, and you know what He did? He gave... And he gave and he gave. He's seen others as more significant than himself. He looked to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Imitate the thinking of Jesus. Be like Jesus. Not to be saved, but because you are what? Saved. Notice next in verse 8. Jesus, Jesus endures the ultimate humiliation and shame here. And being found in form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As the servant of God, Jesus became obedient to God the Father, even to the extent of dying on a cross, a shameful Death, condemned as a criminal. Who are we talking about here? Jesus, who is who? God. You know, the cross for us has become uh, sort of a, like a domesticated symbol. When we think of cross, what do we think about? Well, it's something we wear on our neck, it's something we wear in our ears, or it's something on the steeple of the church building. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but that's sort of what, when we think of cross, A lot of times we we get familiar with those type things. Thinking of the cross that way. Let me ask you this. Suppose one day you walk into the foyer. One Sunday morning you walk into the foyer, and over here on the wall is a picture of the mass graves of the Holocaust. Someone has hung that on the wall in the foyer. What would be your reaction? Would it be sort of unsettling to you? Would it sort of be sort of horrific to look at something like that? Can I tell you, because we have become so familiar with the cross, we can't hear the awful implications that the words of Paul are making here for us. But for those who are in that first century, for those who Paul is writing this letter, the cross was something of what? It was a great horror. The cross was something considered to be cruel, so shameful that they wouldn't even mention the word cross in conversations with one another. Paul is saying here that Jesus made Himself a nobody, He became a slave, and He died a death that was reserved for the dregs of society. Jesus died on a cross. Who is Jesus? God. God comes into this world, humbles Himself and dies on the cross for you and I. Think of it this way. The fact that any good man would humble himself for the sake of others is pretty amazing, isn't it? If we said, there's some good men in here, if one of those good men died for someone, we would think that was pretty amazing, would we not? But the fact of it is, the offended one, God, the one whom we've sinned against, the Lord of glory, should be willing to enter such humiliation. Should bring an overwhelming adoration to our hearts. If a common good man would do that, we'd say, that's amazing. But who has done this for us? God, the one we've sinned against, the offended one comes and does what? Dies for those who offend him. There's so many of us who are uh, living our lives trying to make sure that we're safe, trying to protect ourselves from shame and humility, trying to make sure that even those that are closest to us don't see who we really are and what we're really like. And here's God the Father pouring out his wrath on his son in such a way that the son bears the ultimate shame and humiliation. God the Father treats His Son as if His Son has rebelled against Him. As if He has acted like you and I have acted all our lives toward God. He puts that wrath on Jesus that we are deserving of. Jesus bears in our place the shameful humiliation that is rightfully ours. We're deserving of it. And this Paul says does what? It displays the what? The humility of Jesus, Paul says, Christian, look at your Savior. Look at your Savior. See the humility of your Savior. See what He has done to redeem you from your sin. Now, as you live the Christian life toward no another, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. So that we can unite together to do what? And advance the gospel so more people can hear about Jesus. Again, it's very important if you understand it. When Paul gives this exhortation here in verse 5, he's giving that exhortation to be like Jesus, not simply to individual Christians, but he's giving it to who? The whole congregation. When Paul says... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. He's saying that you should collectively as a congregation think like and have the attitude of Christ. How many of us should act that way who are believers? All of us should act that way. There's a lot of commands in the Bible that are specifically given for individuals to carry out. But this command... Here's what we need to understand. You can't obey this command unless I obey this command. And I can't obey it unless you obey it. Billy, you can't obey it unless Joan obeys it. Tim, you can't obey it unless Wayne obeys it. See what he's saying? It's a congregational command. It can only be fulfilled together as a congregation. And that means... That our sanctification is is not capable of happening apart from one another. We need one another to grow to be like Christ. Out of carrying out this command, it is totally dependent upon every member of the congregation striving to have the mind of Christ. That's what we're to do. We Redbud Baptist Church can't fulfill this command unless we do what? We have to do it together. If even one of us fails to strive to have the mind of Christ, we can experience what God intends for this congregation. How this mind among who? Myself? No, yourselves. And then Paul does what? He points to Jesus and says, There is your example. Paul says the very first step in counting one another is more significant than yourself is to look to Jesus. With that said, no matter how far you have to go to humble yourself before someone, you'll never lower yourself as low as God did when He came into this world to serve you. You'll never match Him, you'll never exceed Him, you'll never approach how far God humbled Himself. But we also need to understand. But this exhortation from Paul shows us why we need the gospel and why we come today to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because if Paul says, Be humble like Christ and God will forgive and save you, as I said earlier, do you know what that gets you? It gets you eternally lost, condemned, forever separated from God. You see, the gospel is not humble yourself like Jesus And God will save you. Instead it is God has given His Son who has humbled Himself in your place by dying on the cross. And because He's done that, and if you respond by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Christ alone, Christ alone to save you, then you are made right with God. Let's bow our heads this morning and pray.